0: This is CHUO89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to change makers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is the Mosaic. Today, we dive into Tamil Heritage Month and discuss the upcoming celebration of Taipongol. Then, we speak with the history of alcohol professor Rod Phillips about dry January. And finally, we'll turn towards the state of the canal as winterlude approaches. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. It's Tamil Heritage Month. Throughout January, the academic, social, and cultural contributions of Tamil Canadians are being highlighted. Canada is home to one of the largest Tamil populations outside of Asia. In a statement released this month, Minister Kamal Kara says this population helped build the Canada we know today. She also credits this significant Tamil presence to the Canadian government's initiatives that helped those fleeing violence in 1983. That year, anti-Tamil pogroms tore through Sri Lanka. This was part of a brutal, week-long, state-sponsored genocide known as Black July. Sinhalese mobs killed at least 3,000 Tamils, destroyed 18,000 homes, and displaced many more. The ensuing civil war lasted until 2009. Hundreds of thousands had fled Sri Lanka, making way for a global Tamil diaspora. Nearly 240,000 Tamils live in Canada. This month aims to celebrate the language and literature they've brought, as well as Tamil history, achievements, culture, and traditions. Perhaps the most widely celebrated by Tamils around the world is Taipongal. Taipongal is known as a harvest festival held to honor the sun. The first day of the celebration is on Sunday, which traditionally sees participants cleaning and discarding old belongings to signify a fresh start. Celebrated over four days, participants also use rice flour, plain and colored, to draw a column. The geometric artworks are laid on the floor, usually at the entrances of the home. The column defines the sacred area where the pongal is prepared. Rice is boiled in milk with brown sugar, even spices, bringing the celebration to a climax once it boils over. This first month of 2024, many are opting to put down the bottle. Dry January is a New Year's resolution and public health campaign to drink less alcohol. To understand how the tradition is unfolding today, we got in touch with Rod Phillips, a professor of the history of alcohol at Carleton University. I sat down with a historian to discuss the 31-day abstinence challenge known as Dry January. Here's our conversation.
1: Dry January um, started uh, maybe 20 years ago, um, and it started in a very informal sort of way. And then it got picked up, I think, probably in the last eight to 10 years and became much more systematic, uh, became advertised. And well, I haven't seen the current statistics, but I know that uh, you know tens of thousands and some places hundreds of thousands of people actually sort of sign up informally for Dry January. What we don't know is, of course, how many people actually Survive all the way to the end of January and and actually don't drink for the whole month.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was reading that last year. Um, it's it's this campaign group in the UK, I think, that started this dry January. Last year, they had, like, over 100,000 people sign up through their website. But like you said, there are people who won't sign up through the website. There are people who won't actually meet their goal. So it's really hard to tell. One thing that I think is interesting is there are some, like, indicators in the trends that we're seeing today um, a lot of people a lot of reports are showing that Gen Z millennials they don't drink as much as previous generations right how do you think that plays into dry January that we see today
1: Well if you're not drinking then it doesn't January doesn't matter I mean you've got you know dry February March and, and everything as well So I, th- I think you know dry January is a kind of um, maybe a kind of probationary or transitional phase for a lot of people that is to say can I do it for a month? And if I can do it for a month, I can do it for two months and three months and so on. So there could be, there could be something like that going on. And I think that pe- if people have a sense that, you know, they're part of a group, that there's, a, there's some sort of community of people who are, who are not drinking, it, may, it might make them, um, it might make it easier to not drink for a whole month. And it could be that, I mean, I, I don't know, but I suspect that if I wanted to participate in Dry January, I'd probably have a buddy Hmm. somebody that I you know I could say well, I, feel, I feel like a glass of wine you know on the on the 13th of January and they could uh, talk me out of it yeah or conversely they could come over and we'll have a glass of wine together
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's good somebody there to give you like a solid finger wag yeah don't do that yeah um, but the way we talk about dry January and seeing if you can last that month and then pushing yourself again it sounds like a healthy challenge but what about the people who can't make it through the month? What does that say to you?
1: Well, I think it's, it's like a lot of New Year's resolutions, right? I mean, people are going to lose weight, they're going to exercise, they're going to, you know, do things. And, you know, dry January kind of plays into that uh, New Year's resolution idea. I don't know. I mean, if people make serious resolutions and then, and then fail, I, I suspect if you talk to uh, professionals about this, they say that's okay, lots of people fail. Uh, when they, when they do things, it doesn't mean that if you fail once that you, you'll never do it. Uh, if you fail, then like you have a glass of wine or a beer or something like that in the middle of January, then the next day you start again, mm-hmm. and, uh, and until you get it to, you know, until you you know get to where you want to go. So I I don't know how serious it is for many people, whether people you know really feel they have a drinking problem. Or whether they just think, uh, you know, that alcohol is not good for you, and so it's better if I don't drink. I guess it depends on, you know, first of all, how committed you are to not drinking, but also, you know, your 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 current experience with alcohol. Because I mean, if you if you if you're a heavy drinker and you drink every day, that's hard mm-hmm. to uh, it's hard to stop.
0: Right. I'm kind of getting that the key from what you just said is a little bit more about. Um, Moderation and understanding yourself more so than the standard of total abstinence.
1: Yeah, and I would say most uh, alcohol professionals would say that, <clears throat> and that is, it's it's it, if you're if you're a steady drinker, it doesn't you don't have to drink a lot, but if you drink every day and you drink you know a few a couple of beers or a couple of glasses of wine every day, you know there's, there's a whole social dimension to to drinking as much as uh, sort of physical physiological and uh and it may be hard to give up but if you reduce your alcohol instead of having two a day or 14 a week reduce to 10 a week or 12 a week um and i think most most professionals would say you know drinking drinking less is always better than uh, than drinking more drinking less is always better than than you know drinking the same amount and drinking drinking nothing is the best but but that may be difficult for a lot of people.
0: Right, yeah. And and like what you just said, drinking nothing is the standard. Last year they released these new regulations that were saying, like, no alcohol is the healthy amount. Right. Um, and they were trying to keep people to, I think it was like, no more than two drinks a week two to a drink stay. Two a yeah. week, yeah. 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 And, and um, I guess I kind of wanted to pick your brain on what you think that means for people who are getting into this more, like, sober, curious atmosphere.
1: Well, I think it's helpful to uh, to. Have, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, when that that proposal came out, there was a lot of uh, a lot of pushback uh, from the alcohol industry and from uh, from uh, you know a lot, a lot of people who uh, who work in the alcohol field. And uh, you know, I think I think I think that the two drinks a week is, is kind of problematic. It's 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 like saying, well, if you if you say that no alcohol is good for you, then why? Why suggest two glasses a week? Why not one? Why not three? I mean two doesn't seem to make any make any sense to me, and you're better off saying nothing, but I think that uh, probably they're afraid of saying don't drink at all because that just sounds too drastic for mm-hmm. people so to to offer them two a week and doesn't <laughs> honestly it doesn't sound worth it to me, but um, uh, I, I guess that's what uh, what they want to do but all, all of these things I think um, you know, tend to kind of reinforce a general tendency towards drinking less in uh, in society today, and certainly younger people are, are drinking a lot less. I mean, it could be that cannabis has been quite helpful there in in some respects, but even where cannabis is not legalized, in, like in many parts of the United States and in in Europe, uh, drinking uh, has gone down, alcohol alcohol consumption has gone down.
0: I also have to ask, how effective do you think abstinence challenges like dry January or sober October are?
1: I don't know how, how uh, effective they are. Um, I, I've read studies that suggest that you're better off instead of trying not to drink for four weeks, uh, which often leads to then the resumption of drinking at the previous level uh, the following month. So, pe- you know, people drink and drink a lot during uh, Christmas and New Year and then drink nothing for January, then in February they sort of catch up. You know, they go back and, and, you know, the first the first time they can get some alcohol or they drink alcohol, they drink a lot. So in the end, uh, it's not necessarily very good. I have seen studies that suggest that you're better off, uh, on a, just on a regular basis throughout the year, not drinking every fourth week. You know, drink three weeks, take a week off, drink another three weeks. But, you know, in those three weeks, don't, don't drink a lot. Just drink uh, modestly.
0: Mm-hmm. And this also comes when there was like a a rise with alcohol consumption too like despite gen z and millennials drinking less we also saw the pandemic which had people drinking more using more recreational drugs right um and so that kind of makes me curious as the world is resuming we've got things like dry january and the sober curious movement um what do you make of that
1: well, I think the pandemic is I mean you have to sort of take the pandemic out of the equation a bit because it's a it's exceptional I mean unless it, unless it continues uh, it's an exceptional period and uh, I mean you find the same thing during recessions and economic depressions and, and and things like that you find all kinds of behavior changes and so you have to you have to take that out um, and and look at the pre-pandemic patterns of, of consumption so I would I would rather consider current patterns of consumption in comparison with uh, you know pre pre 2020 because um, you know the pandemic people did did many people I should say drank drank more during the during the pandemic I mean one one of the things that's quite clear is that you know that uh, you know the higher levels of drinking during the pandemic didn't continue after the pandemic people did, did settle down <laughs> and and uh, start to drink less and now you you have a, like a general push towards you um, no alcohol consumption not only by national governments and so on but and by uh, by you know organizations of various kinds but the World Health Organization is is solidly behind this now Hmm. and you know they were they were very very uh, influential in um, having tobacco uh, regulated and uh, I suspect they're going to be quite successful in having alcohol regulated as well
0: really that push is really interesting to me national governments pushing for no alcohol, because like you said, it's almost like they were hesitant to say no alcohol. They said two drinks, keep it to two drinks, because they were, you know, scared of being a little bit too dramatic. In that sense, um, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, it's moderation rather than the standard of total abstinence, and as a historian, I would love to make the comparison to prohibition. Is that like playing a part in why governments are so hesitant to dictate how people consume
1: alcohol yeah I, I don't see us going to prohibition I mean I read something the other day that said uh, says you know the World Health Organization is is taking the first steps towards prohibition or, or you know wanting wanting a prohibition but you look at look at tobacco I mean there's no prohibition on tobacco it's just very difficult it's more difficult to get and more difficult to smoke I mean the places you can't smoke very few places you can smoke. Uh, and uh, you go into a store and you can't see tobacco, you can't see cigarettes anymore. But there's no prohibition. It's perfectly legal. And, you know, the, the only steps that have been taken are places like New Zealand, where um, they're starting to ban the sale of tobacco to certain age groups. Um, so that over time, nobody will. Nobody will smoke. So that's a kind of prohibition of, of tobacco. So, I'd, I'd, you know, prohibition is, is, you know, it's pretty draconian, pretty radical step because it it means that the the state forbids the production, sale, and sometimes the consumption of alcohol. But bear in mind that even in the United States, during Prohibition, it wasn't illegal to drink. It was simply illegal to make it and sell it. It wasn't even illegal to buy it. If you could find someone to buy it, you could buy it legally, but they weren't permitted to sell it to you legally. So there's a thing there. Uh, So I don't think we're heading for that. So what, what they're... What they're more moving towards is a, is a kind of self-regulation. You know, not that we're going to forbid people to drink, but that we're going to try to convince people not to drink. And this will eventually run down the alcohol industry, which is a huge industry. When you think about wine, beer, and, and spirits, it's a huge industry with, with uh, you know, quite important economic consequences for employment and, and so on. But you can see over time that things, things are going out of business. I mean, a, certain, a lot of wineries are, are going out of business. People who want to sell their wineries can't sell them, and so on, and certain categories of, certain categories of wine are disappearing. Uh, you, you can see this, and I suspect this is only going to get worse, but then, you know, we don't know. We can't predict the future, and for all we know, alcohol consumption might rebound. Mm-hmm. But it's younger people now, and if you're not drinking alcohol when you're younger, you're probably not going to drink it when you get older. Hmm.
0: That is super interesting. I just wanna pull it back for a second sure. and ask you personally, have you ever participated in uh, like dry January? No. No?
1: No, never have. No, I, I've, I've never done Movember, um, the mustache thing. I've never done the Veganuary, um, you, you know, any of these things. But I just think they're a bit gimmicky, uh, mm-hmm. for, for me anyway. Um, and uh, I drink, uh, but I don't, I don't drink every day. Uh, but I drink as a, in, in social social settings. If I have people over, we have wine. If I go out, not drink wine. If I go out to a restaurant, drink wine. If I'm visiting friends, almost always, uh, you know, drink some wine. So, um, no. I mean, I, I think, it, I mean, there are a couple of things. Uh, there are some people who do recognize that they have a problem. And that, uh, that alcohol is actually interfering with them in some way. I mean, relationships, work, you know, life. And then there are, there are people who drink alcohol but know it's not good for them. And I think in my case, that's, that's certainly the case. I mean, I know it's not good for me because alcohol just isn't good for you. You know, but it's all a matter of, sort of, of um, managing risk and looking at probabilities. I mean, I, I travel a lot, I fly a lot. Every time I get in a plane, it's, I'm taking a, a greater risk than not getting in a plane, right? right. Every time yeah. I get in a car, I'm taking a greater risk than not getting in a car. So, but, I mean, life is about risks and life is, life is a pretty risky thing. And it's a matter of uh, managing the risks so when i weigh up the pleasure i get from drinking alcohol with the risk i, I take from drinking alcohol i i make that kind of decision as we all do
0: yeah definitely because we're all subject to that theory of like you never know what tomorrow's going to look like exactly i can see where you're coming from with like the gimmicky thing like to brand a whole month as like this is your challenge for you um and i think that what you said before like having that fourth week to to see if you can just have it off of drinking is way more palatable for people who are just the average drinker like you said you know it's not good for you but you still do in social situations i think that that is probably what's most approachable for people
1: and i think if you have a group if you have a group of friends and you all do it at the same time then it's it's not a problem the problem is when you get out of sync right and then you you know you you go out and you're not drinking but everybody else is. I mean it's great of a social pressure uh, yeah. on on people to uh, to drink, you know, there's always a the question, why aren't you, "Well, why aren't you drinking?" Yeah. yeah. And then you have to have this. You have to have an answer, a good answer that, that people are going to accept because I mean, you know, we, we know historically that, you know, people would get upset if if somebody refused to drink. Like, "Let me buy you a drink." "Yeah, I don't want one." Mm-hmm. is is insulting. And I think that uh, you know, we still have we have a, a little bit of that still
0: hmm, definitely. I, I'd have to agree. Well, thank you, Rhonda. That was my conversation with Rod Phillips, professor of the history of alcohol at Carleton University. With Winterlude being less than a month away, the forecast for skating on the canal doesn't look too promising. The Rideau Canal Skateway opens when the ice is at least 30 centimeters thick, according to the National Capital Commission. That usually takes 10 to 14 days of temperatures between minus 10 and minus 20 degrees Celsius. Every winter, the NCC turns the canal into the world's largest skating rink. Last year was the first time in 53 years the Skateway didn't open. Low temperatures kept the canal from freezing to the thickness required by the NCC. The effects of climate change have led to warmer and wetter winters, leading winterlude planners to pivot their expectations. The festival is set to start on February 2nd, and it features ice sculptures from international artists, events, and a massive snow playground. And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halisna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at c2o.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m.